Welcome to Amplify. Get a chance to look upon this glass, reflecting how all sorts of things must pass. You're listening to Gerald Barry's opera, The Triumph of Beauty and Deceit. And it's the selected work by this week's guest, Mark Fitzgerald. Mark is a lecturer at TU Dublin and has written extensively on Irish composers. This conversation continues on our occasional series in the podcast, where with the help of expert guests, we look back at works by Irish composers in the recent past. So here is Mark Fitzgerald on Gerald Barry's Triumph of Beauty and Deceit. I guess I chose this piece for two reasons. There is the fact that I think it is a significant piece. And then there's also a personal one as well. I'm someone who studied music in Ireland, so naturally didn't really have any exposure to Irish contemporary music at all. It was the piece which suddenly made me realise that there was a thing called Irish contemporary music and that it was also incredibly interesting. This is a piece which has this extraordinary force and that there was someone living a few miles away writing stuff like this was really a revelation. We shall be happy with his little piece and my limbs no longer easily move but creak and stick like groaning clangs of love when through time this glittering beauty lasts The piece was originally commissioned for television by Channel 4. It was commissioned just shortly after his first opera, The Intelligence Park, had been premiered in London. That was a piece which he had spent many, many years writing. It was basically ran through much of the 80s, from about 1980 to about 1988. This one, by contrast, had to be written a bit more quickly because, you know, with the demands for filming schedule and all that kind of thing. So he collaborated with Meredith Oakes, who put together this extraordinary libretto, which is all done in rhyming couplets, and exactly the sort of thing with which Gerard Barry was able to react against in many ways and subvert. Deceit am I, whose eager surge avenges every thwarted at conscience to comfort I, transpose and importance dress in royal clothes, what do you care for time's ill will? Pleasure smiles before you still Do not allow predicted things to smirch The joy the present brings in terms of the subject matter, it actually is a reference back to a piece by Handel. This is a piece that exists in three different versions, the last of which has the English title, The Triumph of Time and Truth. The Handel Oratorio is, I suppose, typical of its time. It's one of these allegorical tales. You have this figure of beauty who has to choose between these contending factions. And so you have have time and truth on the one hand they're obviously the good guys the other hand is pleasure uh, which is always dodgy and you've got other characters associated with pleasure in the handle of course having did it for about two hours beauty then chooses the right ones time and truth and it's all ends happily that's the end of that this opera takes the same starting point but it subverts it in several different ways first of all this is an all-male opera 
duty is a tenor, and you have on the one side time, a bass, and truth, a countertenor, and on the other side you have pleasure, a countertenor, with deceit, a baritone. So all these men are contending for the attentions of this other man, Beatty. When you consider the time when this was actually composed, around 1991-92, homosexuality was still illegal in Ireland at that point. So it's interesting to see an opera tackling something like that at that particular point in time in Ireland. The second thing that subverts the whole story is, of course, that rather than beauty doing inverted commas the right thing, beauty finds the idea of leaving pleasure aside uh, far too much to bear and in the end decides to stick with pleasure and vanquish both time and truth. The only thing that leaves the ending rather ambiguous is that by doing that, beauty has also to take on board deceit rather than truth. So there's a big sort of question mark over this decision at the end of the opera. What kind of defines Gerald or what makes him unique when it comes to his approach to operas? I suppose you could say that he has a very unique approach to transforming whatever text he's taking into an opera. It's a very personal approach. It's a very intense approach. I think that's probably what sort of sets his operas aside from most of what else happens in it or at present. In terms of the range of his operas, there have been a lot of changes in how he works over the years, naturally enough. And this opera comes from, I suppose, a sort of second phase in his writing. So the first phase is kind of dominated by his first opera, The Intelligence Park. The 90s were dominated by pieces which used a lot of very short sections of material and jumped very quick from one mood to the next. In a lot of cases, he used cannons to kind of thicken out the texture. of how he treats the text, he goes against the grain of what he's been provided with. What he's been provided with is a very rigid structure, a 
set of rhyming couplets. And he writes the work in such a way that you would probably not actually realize when you're listening to it that the text is rhymed because he doesn't follow what you might call the natural scansion of the text. This is something which is very evident in this opera and also in the Intelligence Park, less so in Literatures of Pedro von Kant. But he tends to just take the text as a sort of starting point. And he's not too concerned about, say, clarity of text or, you know, that you hear it exactly or that, you know, you have a setting which seems immediately at a surface level sympathetic to the meaning. He is often maybe honing in on some general idea or some uh, secondary idea to do with the text in terms of how he amplifies that across the music. It's not like your traditional well-made opera where, you know, everything fits exactly. In many ways, it deliberately goes against all those conventions. Handel is a composer who's had a very strong influence on 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 Gerald. Apart from the obvious use of the you know the subject uh, and and the themes you know which are common um uh, to to both composers, how is the influence of Handel apparent in this work? I suppose the influence of Handel is one of those slightly indirect things. Certainly, in interviews, Barry's talked about the drama and passion that you find in Handel operas. And that is something which greatly interests him. I suppose also the clarity of texture in Baroque music in general, but also in Handel's operas. That type of clarity is also something that you get in Barry's own music. There's also, to a certain degree, an influence of the type of instrumental writing you get in Baroque opera and Baroque music. In a lot of Baroque music, there's a very strong interest in timbre, in sound, in colour, particular instruments used for their coloristic effect as much as anything else. You know, the horns are only used in particular scenes or trumpets are only used in particular scenes and so on and so forth, but often then used in particular registers as well. So in Triumph, there's a lot of uh, very high horn writing, which sounds like Baroque horn writing. 
You can hear it very clearly in some of the instrumental interludes, particularly the big canonic interlude after Pleasure has sung his aria all day and all night through dark and through light, Pleasure comes singing and calling you. You have this gradual build-up of increasingly dense canonic texture. And by the time you get to the latter stages of it, you can hear above everything else the horn playing up at the top of its register. Uh, so that kind of thing all comes from Baroque opera. In many ways, it's music that ignores the 19th century, which is, of course, the the century for the string orchestra, you know, or the weighty strings within the orchestra. So that whole sound world that we're so used to is, is kind of completely skipped over. And instead, it's looking back to when there was that sharper clarity where the winds and brass are really strongly etched against whatever strings are playing. Exploding time in the realms of light. Fancy flies, but death is faster. Die and I cease to be your master. What exactly is the role of the orchestra when it comes to the dramatic flow of the work? How does it serve that? I guess the orchestral passages have, on the one hand, a practical (laughs) kind of use, which is that he had to fill a particular amount of time. The rate at which he processes text is ferociously fast. So a text that another composer would spend several hours over, you know, he's whistled through in about 20, 30 minutes. When everything is so fast and frenetic, it helps to balance the structure. There are these moments where you have that necessary break from the rapid fire text that's flying at you non-stop it also helps to achieve balance on on other levels as well in terms of either increasing the intensity at certain points of the drama or maybe decreasing it at other points to let us move smoothly from one section of text to the next The thing about Joe Vary is he's interested in virtuosity. And this opera is about issues like time and death, decay, all these things that are ahead of us all. In one interview, he said that if something is virtuosic enough, it can give the sensation that time has stood still for a moment. So the virtuosity is actually also uh, playing a dramatic role within the piece. When, for example, the character of Pleasure brings the other characters through his court and sings this ferociously difficult aria, it is the perfect way of demonstrating how 
this character of pleasure can, through the sheer extraordinary quality of the singing, make it seem like time has stopped. It starts quite moderately fast, but then it keeps getting faster each time at each section. Just as you think, you know, the singer is pushed to their utmost, suddenly the tempo pushes up that bit further and off the counter goes with more semi-quavers at ferocious speed again. He's also just interested in the entire range of what is possible with the voices. And yeah, I suppose that's probably most obvious with the bass voice. You know, when time first appears, you have this extraordinary line which begins right down at the bottom, you know, on a low D uh, below the stave, and then works its way up until it's up in falsetto range. And that kind of approach to the voice is very, very typical of all of Barry's operatic writing, exploiting it to its absolute utmost, finding everything that is possible for it to do. I wait for beauty till he knows his The other really important aspect of his his writing is the emphasis on melody and melodic lines. In a world where a lot of music by contemporary composers tends to be rather grey and featureless, it really, really stands out that the music is all based around melody. In this opera, you've got a huge array of fantastic melodies thrown at you one after another. It's one of the glorious features of the work. You are my delight, my delight, my delight. You are my delight, my fair one. You are my delight, my comfort at night. And I'll roll you nine times before Thank you. 